Let's pray as we come to the word this morning. Heavenly Father, as we, we come to your word this morning, Lord, we just ask that you would be with us, that you would guide us and lead us once again in your truth, in your ways to know your heart and your love. Amen. <clears throat> Laws, love them or hate them, they are, are, are a reality that defines our society. <clears throat> Laws are created to define the, the right way for people and businesses to interact. They're created to protect the interests of people and to make people safe. But laws can also become red tape. They can be inconvenient and cause more trouble sometimes than perhaps they're worth. Sometimes laws can just be outright ridiculous. Here are some of the more outrageous ones. It's illegal to wear hot pink pants after midday on Sunday. It's illegal to walk on the right-hand side of the footpath. It's illegal to roam the streets wearing black clothes, felt shoes and black shoe polish on your face as these items are the tools of a cat burglar. <clears throat> and then there are some that, that just really don't make too much sense. <clears throat> you can be fined $200 for touching electrical wires that cause your death. And it's illegal to be near or inside a house frequented by thieves. Whether we like it or not, dealing with laws are a part of everyday life. Regardless of how well thought out a law is, all laws are created to define what is right and what is wrong and to set out what happens when something wrong is done. The penalty. Today, we're continuing in our series, Kingdom Living, looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom of heaven, as we've mentioned in previous weeks, is defined by the sovereignty of God. It represents everything that God has created and the way he created it to be. As we look to understand what the kingdom of heaven is, we see throughout Jesus' teachings this picture painted for us, a picture that reveals both God's glory and his righteousness. It's also a picture that puts on display God's love and desire for us to be in a relationship with him. To know him and to live with him in his kingdom. There are three big parts to this big plan that God has. The first is, is that in order to live with God in his kingdom, we need to firstly recognize that spiritually our righteousness, our own righteousness is bankrupt. We have nothing to bring. We cannot earn a righteousness good enough, pure enough, holy enough to, to warrant our entrance, our own entrance into the kingdom. The second important thing is that God has made a way for us still to be able to come into this relationship and into his kingdom. 
And that's what we're going to be looking at today in in this message, uh, in this passage, which will be from Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to 20. And finally, the the third aspect to this living in God's kingdom is that to live in God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is to live God's way, not our own way. That means that we need to be willing to wrestle with our comforts and our desires and to surrender them as our priorities, to take up God's priorities. One, of it, one example of this might be that we are willing to place ourselves in a position where our comforts and even our livelihood is compromised. So far as what we are able to provide for ourselves in order that there is a greater possibility of being able to share the good news in a meaningful way to those who really desperately need it. A classic example of this type of of sacrifice are, are our school chaplains who often forgo better paying work in order to love and care for people, staff, students and families, demonstrating the sacrificial, gracious and compassionate love of God. In other cases, it may well mean that we are willing to surrender the comfort and freedom of our independent and self-sufficient living in order to authentically share the gospel in a hostile culture, in ways that are meaningful and relevant to a world that is lost. This This willingness, this this willingness, this desire above all else to know God's love and to live that out, that is what it means to live in the kingdom of heaven. But for today, we want to go back to that second point, that God has made a way for us to enter into his kingdom. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, and we're reading from verse 17. And Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What he means there is that every letter of the law, every minuscule aspect of it, has meaning and value and function and purpose in pointing us to the righteousness of God. Verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We've mentioned that the law defines for us what is right and what is wrong, and it outlines for us what the penalty or the punishment for breaking the law is. From time to time, we hear our politicians, the ones who create these laws, talk about cutting the red tape. By this, they mean simplifying and reducing the requirements of the law. So is this what Jesus means when he says that he has come to fulfill the law? 
Before we get into the passage this morning, we need to understand what Lord Jesus is referring to and some of the common misconceptions about what it means for Jesus to fulfill the law. Firstly, the law that Jesus is referring to is the first five books of the Bible and the writings of the major and minor prophets of the Bible. The intent of all of this law is to, to establish what is required to live in a relationship, a covenantal relationship, a law-binding relationship with God. We've all heard the saying, my house, my rules. You know, when we're in someone else's house, we respect them and we respect their property by accepting their right to set the level of what is acceptable to happen in their house. In the same way, God created everything. He carefully crafted the skies and the earth. He made the seas and the land and he created all of the laws that the scribes spent millennia discovering. Sorry, that, the, that science, all the laws that science has spent millennia discovering. He did this to create a place for the jewel of all of his creation, mankind. Mankind, you and me, he carefully knitted together so that we could live our lives in relationship with our maker. He started with just one rule, not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The purpose of this law was for our own benefit, up to this point, life was good. Life was simple, enjoyable and satisfying. But Adam and Eve broke this one law. And as a result, the people he created changed. Rebellion from God became easier. It's like a destructive yet addictive drug. The more you take it, the easier it becomes. But the more damage it will also bring. By the time of Moses, mankind had taken this simple, fulfilling life God had given us and we had corrupted it with so much selfishness that we had created murder, stealing, adultery, unfaithfulness and unkindness. So God gave Moses and the people of Israel the law, which would show them how to undo the corruption, how to live in a way that God had intended us to live right from the beginning. But the problem is that we'd become so corrupted that the law wasn't something that could save us. Because no matter how hard we try, we can never completely do everything right. So the law only served to show us how corrupted we had become into Jesus and the fulfillment of the law. We can look at Jesus as the fulfillment of the law in two ways. The first way is that he came to lower the bar, to cut the red tape, to make the law easier for us to achieve. We can say things like those laws of the Old Testament don't apply anymore because we're under a new covenant or we're under grace. So the laws about stoning people because they're adulterers or because they worship other gods or because they're involved in new age practices and the occult don't apply anymore. But that's not what Jesus is on about. In, in fact, 
What we're going to see here today is that Jesus didn't replace the old covenant with the new covenant. He didn't throw out the Old Testament so that we should live by the New Testament alone. He came to re-establish the law. He came to teach people the law of Moses is the same and it will never change. And that he came to fulfill it. You see, in this way, we can view Jesus' fulfillment of the law is that he is fulfilling the requirements and paying the penalties of the law on our behalf. This doesn't mean that the law is no longer has any meaning because Jesus has paid the punishment. What it means is that Jesus has taken the burden, the weight of the law, the weight of our punishment away so that we can be focused on the heart and the intent of the law to pursue the righteousness of God. We receive this righteousness from Jesus through the cross now and we pursue it through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Remember, the purpose of the law was to establish the requirements for living in a relationship with God the way He created us to be, the way He intended us to be. So what does that mean for us? If Jesus is saying that all of those hard laws, the uncomfortable laws still stand today, what does it mean that he has fulfilled them? Well, there are two ways that we can look at the law itself. The first way is that it is an obligation that I must meet in order to gain entrance and, and qualify to get into heaven. It's kind of like at the Olympics, in order to qualify for the Olympics, there are certain benchmark times or benchmark measures that you have to meet. We can, we can see the law as this obligation. And once we've finished our checklist, once we've achieved a certain level, then we get our ticket into heaven. We get our passport stamped and we can do whatever we want, however we want. Life is essentially ours to live and we have been guaranteed eternity. This kind of thinking places the emphasis on the task and not the purpose of the law. We end up with the ways the Pharisees legalistically developed those laws. The second way to view the law is as the basic fundamental expectations for a relationship. The law defines a relationship, just like a marriage law defines our relationship with God. And understanding the heart of the law, the intent of the law, drives us deeper into that relationship. It defines what is acceptable in a relationship, that it's exclusive between one God and his people. It describes what it looks like to love God and to love others. You see, we don't now do these things because we have to, but we do them because we desire the intimacy of that relationship. And once you're in that relationship, you don't, don't stop doing them. In fact, we become more intentional about them. Jesus is saying, I have fulfilled the requirements for you to have a relationship with God again. It doesn't mean that you can ignore the law because that is still how God expects us to relate to him. But grace means that when we don't, we don't have to be perfect at it yet. 
Grace means that Jesus will pay the penalty for our mistakes and we can keep on living in the relationship with God. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit within us that will continue to help us increasingly reflect the righteousness Jesus has given us, a righteousness that will be perfected in eternity. But until then, we remain committed to God's ways, learning them, growing in them, and seeing them better reflected in our lives. The difference between these two things is that the first one is a destination view. And the second one is a relational view of the kingdom of heaven. One has an end point in mind. I've just got to qualify to get through the door. But it's on my terms and it's my ways. And it suits my needs and I'm still steering the ship. And the other way is about complete surrender to God. Say, it's your way, God. All I desire, all I long for is to know you and to be in relationship with you. Often we can get discouraged in our relationship with God because we love him and yet we continue to let him down. We continue to be unfaithful to him and to the righteousness he has given us. We can get to a point at which we feel like there is no way we can honour him and love him the way that he deserves. We can feel like there is no way that we could ever possibly be good enough. And you know, that is exactly the point. By fulfilling the law, Jesus is telling us that we don't have to be perfect. But let's not cheapen our relationship with God by ignoring the important aspects of the law, which describe how important it is for us to live his way. Because his way is a better way, a holier way, a righteous way. So what about the stoning laws and all the things that we find in the Old Testament that seem obsolete? Well, at a very basic level, they still show us what is right and what is wrong. It is wrong to commit adultery. It's wrong to murder. It's wrong to steal. It's wrong to covet. Jesus never intended that these things should change. So even though he has fulfilled the law and paid the penalty for our sins, past, present and future, it's still wrong to steal, to murder and to lie, to worship false gods, to live in sexual immoral relationships. But the punishment is withheld or, the, or, or postponed. And in the case of those, as Jesus says, who will repent and follow me, it is paid for. For those who desire to follow God and live in his ways. Jesus says, I pick up the tab. I've paid that debt. And for everyone else, he says, I will wait. I will wait to the very last, to the very end of time before I pass my judgment in order to be gracious to us. 
Jesus finishes this little section by saying in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's very easy for us to become focused on on a list of things that we need to do and a list of things that we need to not do. But the danger that we, we have here is that we can fall into a trap of thinking that we're actually better than what we really are, that we're, we have achieved or earned or gained a righteousness that, is, that is, is better than others. It's something that Paul never forgot. When Paul continues to remind his readers and his audience that he considers himself, he knows himself to be the worst of sinners. You see, when we have this list of things and we we keep track of how we're going, we say, yeah, I'm doing pretty well. I'm making all of this effort. I'm earning my way here. We cheapen the grace and the work that God has done. The glory, let's not forget, belongs to God. The, The second aspect to this problem is that it creates this tendency to become judgmental of those that we perceive as less righteous, which is very pharisaical. We see it uh, when Jesus tells the the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee coming to the temple of God and, and, and presenting themselves before God. And it is the Pharisee who says, I thank you that I am not like this wretched sinner of a tax collector. How often we see this attitude in Christians And Jesus condemns that heart attitude because it is not our righteousness. It is his righteousness that we see in us. It is his sacrifice that reveals any good in us. Instead of looking upon a world that is lost and broken and desperately in need of God's grace and mercy, we approach it with a judgmental attitude. We we speak to them with with condemnation instead of grace and compassion. What Jesus means when he says that our righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees is that we need to understand not simply the mechanics of the law, but the heart and intent of the law. Jesus fulfilled the law because we could never meet the standards required. The reason he did this was to provide us a freedom to engage with the heart of the Lord, to understand God's love, God's compassion, his gentleness and his mercy. If all we have as Christians is a view of how good we are and how bad the world is, we have sorely missed the heart of the law. The law that Jesus came so that we might, to to fulfill, so that we might live in it. If we look at the secular world or the pagan world around us, and in our hearts we feel only condemnation for those who do not believe in the God that we believe in, that we follow, that we love, then we have failed to grasp God's heart for mankind. A heart that deeply desires the lost to be found, and the sinners to be redeemed. How did Jesus do this? How, how did Jesus 
approach a sinful world, a broken world, a lost world? Did he do it through harsh words and condemnation? No, not at all. No, he did it with gentleness and compassion and great personal sacrifice. And for those of you who, who want to say, ah, but Pastor Nick, what about, what about when he went into the temple? That is not when Jesus is going into a lost and broken world. That is when Jesus is going into the church, a church that holds the world in contempt, a church that has no right to hold the world in contempt, a church that has no right to stand in judgment upon the world because the church at its core, at its heart, is just as broken as the world it seeks to condemn. Now Jesus, when he met the woman caught in adultery, met her with compassion and grace and mercy. When he, when he spoke to Zacchaeus, the tax collector, it was with gentleness, with respect and with compassion. We see this time and again. Jesus treats the lost with gentleness and love, grace and mercy, and all around compassion. How we live our lives, how we relate to the world around us is indicative of our heart attitudes. And if our heart attitudes lack the gentleness and compassion that Jesus demonstrates time and again, then we have some hard questions to ask ourselves. Jesus fulfilled the requirements and penalties of the law so that we can engage with the heart of the law, with the heart of God. So the question for us this morning to reflect on is what kind of heart attitude is reflected in our lives? Do we have a tendency to speak harsh words, condemnation, Or are our lives characterised by compassion and mercy? Are we willing to sit in the brokenness of those who revile us and persecute us, who, who ridicule us to love them? Are we willing to bear their pain in order that they may know the freedom that we have? Is there a warmth and a gentleness in how we relate, how we speak, and how we live in the kingdom? Let the Holy Spirit lead you in his ways this week. Lead you more into his likeness and more into his love. Let's pray. Lord, we know one thing this morning. One thing that is certain above all things and that we are wretched sinners, broken. Lord, that, that we do not know love like you know love. We do not know grace like you know grace and we do not know righteousness and holiness like you know righteousness and holiness. And so with humbled hearts this morning, with grateful hearts full of thanksgiving. 
knowing that you have fulfilled the requirements and the penalties of the law on our behalf. Lord, we ask that you would lead us in your ways, that you would transform us in your likeness, that we may know your love, that we may may be your love through gentleness, compassion, grace and mercy, that through these things we may show your truth to a world that is desperate and crying out for hope, crying out for freedom. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus, in our hearts. Come in our lives. Come in this world. Amen.